Throughout the year, kids in my neighborhood spend endless days outside as a pack. Ranging in age from 4 to 12, you'll see them with a soccer ball and a hula hoop, or a football and a hockey stick, talking about how this new game might go. One particular day this summer, they were off to cook up some revolutionary new sport with a frisbee, a five-gallon bucket, and a well-worn home plate. It turns out the game they were making has been around for over a hundred years, ironically started by another merry band of children. On a handmade course in Saskatchewan, Canada, these kids invited their classmates to toss tin lids at a base. Today the game is known as disc golf. With the first standardized course established in 1975, the sport has continued to grow in popularity around the world. Today, disc golf is played by a myriad of enthusiasts, from individuals to amateur leagues to professional organizations. With 90% of the courses in the U.S. today installed on either public land or in municipal parks, disc golf organizations are passionate about the sport for its inclusivity and positive social and life skills. And environmentally, it's sustainable. It's played in public spaces where native plants and wildlife habitats are incorporated into the design, and maintenance of these courses puts a strong emphasis on promoting safe and renewable parks. For one man during COVID, his local park offered a virus-safe place to share time and camaraderie with others where few places existed. Armed with a frisbee and a few new friends, he found a calling to serve his diverse community in need of good, clean, and green fun. It's called Target, and our story starts here. From the studios of Hum Productions, I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is Impactually. Tommy Ingalls lives in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. It's home to Jackson Park, a 550-acre public park along the beautiful shores of Lake Michigan. It's where, when much of the globe was shut down in 2020, Tommy Ingalls discovered a brand new world. When we first started, it was just kind of a, we wanted to just do something outside. Tommy and his wife welcomed their son six weeks before the city ordered residents to shelter in place. And soon thereafter, Tommy felt what many parents were feeling, a desperate need to spend time outside of the house. We bought a basket online and brought it to the park just because we were tired of being out like inside. And we had played a couple times before, but, you know, neither of us had really played disc golf, you know, even much as a hobby. That impulse purchase of a disc basket and Frisbees would change Tommy's life. The first time that we were out there, there was two other dads walking their kids in strollers that were like, oh, you guys play disc golf. What started as two quickly grew into many. But before we get there, I had to ask Tommy, what the heck is disc golf? It's the same exact rules of golf. But instead of, you know, using clubs and hitting a ball, you're throwing your Frisbee. Essentially, wherever your Frisbee lands, that's where you throw your next throw. Disc golf has evolved since its debut. The game of competitively tossing a flying disc or frisbee, as trademarked by the toy company Whammo, has been called many names, including frisbee golf or frolf. You mean golf? Rolf! Frisbee golf, Jerry! Golf with a frisbee! But unlike golf, you don't aim for a hole in the ground. Instead, players shoot for what are known as baskets. Imagine a metal pole about four feet high, 
surrounded by a ring of chains that dangle like a waterfall into a metallic cage. And the idea is if you hit the chains, the disc falls in. But I mean, that, that really is it, is you just throw it from one spot, pick it up, throw it again until you get in the basket. And then whoever's got the lowest score wins. So um, in golf, you use different clubs depending on the kind of shot that, you, that you're looking for. Are there different kinds of discs depending on the kinds of shots that you're trying to take? There are three kind of main types is you've got your drivers, which is for okay. distance. You have your um, mid-range or fairway, which is basically to get you close enough to the basket so you can putt. And then you have your putters, which they don't go very far, but they, you know, you, you're aiming in inches with the putters. And every disc has uh, four numbers that get assigned to it. And that is the speed, glide, and basically left turn or right turn. Okay. And that... Uh, so you can pick up a disc and you'll know how it flies. Um, and, you know, your lowest speed discs are one and they go all the way up to 14. But your 14 discs are your highest speed drivers that like you got to have a lot of strength and really good form to really throw that kind of stuff. I, you know, I tend to throw like 10 or 11 speed drivers. Um, I've got tennis elbow. And so, it, you know, I... I, I try to throw about 80% so I don't hurt myself. How many discs do you own at this point? It's probably around 50. Armed with his basket and discs, Tommy began cultivating a community. The more that we played in the park, the more people kind of joined in with us. As it really took, you know, a couple minutes to teach people. And it was interesting because, like, the first thing that kind of happened was we, the park district didn't allow more than six people to gather. And so we had more than six people showing up to the putting stuff. And so at that point we decided to start leaving the basket all day so people could play whenever they want. And we basically carried it out in the morning and brought it in at night for about a year. And then in April of that year, we decided we were tired of carrying it and we just left it in the park to see what happened and to see if it was taken. And we started leaving discs in there. The idea is, you know, anybody could walk up and start playing. We'd write instructions on the back of the disc of how to play it. And then we used QR codes that we taped to the basket so people could uh, skate them and learn how to play. Um, for the most part, like nobody really ever took them. For an inner city park, that's absolutely amazing. I think that that's that's really people's biggest question is like, oh, they haven't got stolen, and like I think they, that really is kind of the expectation because like the South Side's got, you know, the stigma to it. We see a lot of comments on like Facebook of like somebody posting, oh, I'm going to go play the course in Jackson Park. And people are like, oh, make sure you wear your bulletproof vest. What happens is they come down and they play and they're like, man, this is nowhere near, you know, that. Inspired by his community, Tommy submitted a proposal to the Jackson Park Advisory Council to have a permanent basket installed. Members of the Jackson Park Advisory Council were there and we started communicating. They invited us out to take a tour and Dana Vici from Dismania, who's a course designer and such, um, agreed to come out there and take a look with us. Honestly, I kind of rolled my eyes. This is Dana Vici, a father of two in Mokina, Illinois, with many titles, including professional disc golfer, U.S. sales manager for Discmania Discs, and disc golf course designer. This is something that comes up quite a bit and, you know, get an email and it's, uh, you know, just a disc golf enthusiast saying, you know, how can I do it? But uh, with Tommy, it was it was different. He had 
done an incredible amount of work already and, and had this really great plan. And um, I immediately said, you know, I, I want to partner with that. And then so I started to scheme and think about um, how to make that happen. And scheme he did. Through his connections, Dana was able to call upon partners throughout the disc golf world to try and make Tommy's dream a reality. Instead of just one basket, Dana imagined a whole course with nine or even 18 holes. Of course, schemes and dreams often stay that way when plans languish in development. These projects typically take years. Times, it you know, there's park boards, city boards, there's community hearings. In essence, a lot of red tape. Every town, every city, no two are the same in how they operate. So there's not necessarily a playbook that you can follow for every project. So uh, each project has to be approached differently. And sometimes it can feel like moving heaven and earth, literally. Typically, if uh, we're coming into a wooded lot that we're looking at disc golf, you know, love trees, uh, but, you know, we need to have fairways. So we try to, myself as a course designer, try to find uh, the path of least resistance. So finding those uh, invasive species or those trees that are dead or dying that are on their way out and then you know, mark those to, you know, for removal. How much does it cost to install an 18 hole course? So all the equipment, all the supplies and everything uh, could be in that 30 to $40,000 range. But, um, you know, when you compare installing a disc golf course to a pickleball court <laughs> or a basketball court, it, it, it really, it's a drop in the bucket. Let's put that into perspective. Okay, to build a 30-foot by 60-foot pickleball court, which accommodates about four people at a time, the cost averages between $20,000 and $45,000, depending on the surface. To purchase a full-size basketball court runs anywhere from $30,000 for a junior high-sized court to around $50,000 for an NCAA NBA-sized court. Is there maintenance that goes along with with having a disc golf course? I mean, clearly you want to keep the fairways open and stuff like that, but the actual equipment, is there is there maintenance that you have to do to keep these things up or are they pretty self-sufficient? It's pretty self-sufficient for comparing disc golf to golf. We're not treating the fairways and using copious amounts of water to, to water the grass. We as disc golfers like these natural spaces. Louise McCurry, president of the Jackson Park Advisory Council, or JPAC, understands the importance of having those natural spaces. It is that really important thing. The connection between the healthiness and creating good health and green space and creating positive families and positive networks for families to be outside and to relax and to both their mental and physical health improve. Parks do that. But Louise also understands that not all parks are created equal and that income inequality contributes to the disparity between parks in a wealthier neighborhood and those that aren't. Parks in Chicago in general often are at the bottom of the money chain in terms of finances available to make improvements. For many years, Southside parks were simply neglected. The problem is there's no one standing in line to give money to poor parks. There are lots of people standing in line to have their name put on things, which are parks in the other parts of the city. But nobody comes to the south side and says, let me give you $30 million. So when Tommy approached her for a location to put the new disc golf course, Louise knew the perfect place. It was my last dangerous area really to take on. 
that had folks still selling drugs there, that had folks prostituting there, that had real, we found, found incredibly dangerous things there that were going on that had been totally closed off because trees and weeds and invasive species had simply taken it over. Sanctioned to clear this depraved lot of land, Tommy got to work, but he didn't do it alone. Instead, he organized work days and hosted cleanups. During the peak of the pandemic, when people worked from home, Tommy had anywhere between a half a dozen to five dozen volunteers picking up trash, cleaning graffiti, and clearing away other insidious junk that had wormed its way into the park. When we first started, like you couldn't see six feet in front of you. You know, we pulled out like three different mattresses, um, three different, like three different knives, a couple arrows, um, so many condoms and condom wrappers. That sounds romantic. Oh, man. (laughs) It it, it was just, then there's just this layer of trash that has been there for ever and 12 years. And like, not only is it cleaning up the park, but it's a chance for us to teach them about, you know, the fauna of the park. Then, you know, there's a lot of invasive species that we're removing out of there. There's, you know, buckthorn, the honeysuckle, uh, black snake root, uh, common burdock. It's a chance to talk about, you know, the native pollinators that are out there, the Canadian goldenrod, the milkweed. Now that we've kind of cut out the buckthorn and the honeysuckle, sunlight's coming in there. With a path forward cleared, others began to see Tommy's vision. And one of those partners was the Paul Macbeth Foundation, a nonprofit whose mission is to install disc golf courses in cities and countries without easy access to the sport. Most recently, they've helped establish courses in Camden, New Jersey, Kampala, Uganda, Managua, Nicaragua, and Nairobi, Kenya. And they donated the first nine baskets to the Jackson Park Disc Golf Course. With the baskets in place and the fairway clear, it was time to welcome the crowds. But would it be enough to just build the course, or would Tommy need to look to Jackson Park's past to save its future? That and more when we return after this. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Impactually. The team at Hum Productions works hard to leverage our episodes with the incredible and inspiring impact of our guests. If you want to support the show and be more in the know of what's coming up with Impactually, you're invited to support us on Patreon. Whether it's branded swag, earning producer-level credits, gaining access to scripts, or learning what's happening behind the scenes, you can get those and more if you go to patreon.com forward slash Impactually. That's patreon.com forward slash Impactually. When you think of a park, you probably imagine a grassy field with a few trees, perhaps a playground, and maybe a basketball court. But the origin of parks dates back to the start of civilization itself. Some argue places like the Roman Forum, a designated location to exchange ideas and goods, is one of the first iterations of a park. In fact, many of our typical town squares stem from this purpose of centralizing a common meeting place for events like elections, parades, protests, and other citizenry participation. But the history of the modern park, what we typically associate today, came about around the 1850s to the turn of the 20th century. It was a way for city planners to effectively address the encroaching city sprawl of the Industrial Revolution by not simply replicating the aristocratic gardens of Europe, but to simulate the pastoral countryside quickly being consumed and forgotten. 
One of the grandfather architects of this type of park was Frederick Law Olmsted. He believed a park should emphasize and utilize its naturally occurring features instead of forcing the landscape to conform to the designer's whim. It's this revolutionary philosophy that catapulted Olmsted to help co-design many of today's famous parks, including Central Park in New York City and the area surrounding the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Olmsted also contributed to the design of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, sometimes better known as the Chicago World's Fair, located right there in Jackson Park. Like many of the World's Fairs before it, the hopes for the Chicago Fair was that it could help bridge the various divides across the world. Which brings us 130 years later to today. With the baskets gifted by the Paul Macbeth Foundation and others donated by disc golf enthusiasts, Tommy was ready to let the public play in their newly erected disc golf course. But not all were pleased with what he had done, and some of the most outspoken detractors were the disc golfers themselves. You know, we got tons and tons of feedback like on comments and the course reviews. and so, I mean, We got a lot of horrible reviews when we first started out. But as fate had it, some park development improvements forced Tommy and his team to redo the course layout. When they finished setting up the 18-hole course they have today, they were ready for the big leagues, sort of. They hosted their first tournament to coincide with the cherry blossom season, and they called it Baskets and Blossoms. 61 people showed up to play, 28 of whom were playing in their very first tournament. But as Tommy learned... Um, disc golfers do not hold back their opinion. The players told Tommy they didn't want to pay the moderate entry fees, knowing that they were going to lose. And Tommy agreed with them. Reflecting on the history of Jackson Park, Tommy didn't want finances to be a barrier for people to play. He spent that summer working on raising money and getting donations. And then we hosted the Windy City Throwdown in August. And that one we had 91 people participate and 38 people play for in their first tournament. And what was interesting about that is we only did a, the entry fee was 15 bucks and anybody under 18 played for free. Not only was the passion for disc golf growing, its benefits spread to other attractions in the area. A lot of the disc golf courses, you know, it takes about two hours to play on average and ours takes about 90 minutes. So we had a lot of people that come in, they played 90 minutes and then they went into like the Japanese garden, the Museum of Science and Industry. And so we've really been kind of encouraging that as, you know, if you're coming into the city, like, you know, take the 90 minutes or whatever to play disc golf, but there's so much more that you can do there with your family. He's also surprised it's not just the locals that are playing. We had people from Florida, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin, um, all come to that tournament. We had a girl from Spain that was coming here from school and she just had got here a couple days before and was like, oh, I played disc golf in Europe. And it was her first tournament in the States. It was just cool to see that. During the development of the course, Tommy came up with the idea of including historical facts on the T signs. Markers at each T pad, which provide players information on the whole, such as par, obstacles, and navigating to the next basket. He reached out to Trish Morris, a historian who does a series in the Hyde Park Herald about the local history, to ask her for help in developing the T signs. You know, we were like, you know, can you help us with this and really like give these paragraphs the pizzazz of, you know, we want people to read them and be like, shit, I didn't know that. So, and she was like, that's exactly what I want people to say. So when people are coming from all over visiting Jackson Park, people learn about the park. And I think that really 
instilled a lot of pride in people is like part of making this happen, but also them learning about the park and uh, the history feels like people, you know, people feel like they're part of it. Tommy is hoping he can grow a community, not just for the disc golfers in Chicago, but for his family as well. I did a small little training thing at the Illinois School of Deaf. My two and a half year old's hard of hearing. And so we went out there this year to like learn about, you know, raising a kid that, with hearing issues and stuff. And so while we were there, I met um, Jamal Gardner. He, he's on the U.S. Deaf basketball team. He went, he went to school there and now he's like a coach and a mentor. Um, and he, he's also a disc golf player. He came out to Jackson Park and played around with me. Get out. Yeah, he, and they, he just made the this year's team that's going to Argentina to represent the United States. And the three top teams from the United States go to the Japan Deaf Olympics in 2025. How cool. Yeah, and so that that was interesting because he um, is, prof- Jamal is profoundly deaf. And I've been learning sign language for my kid, but I'm getting a little better about disc golf signing. But, you know, there's a whole deaf disc golf um community they have their own like events and stuff like that and i would love to like see them come to chicago tommy has a lot of high hopes for chicago's place in the professional world of disc golf what we've seen is like this time last year there were like 15 unique players that played like 45 60 rounds um and then this year we have i think 280 unique players playing like 600 rounds so like the growth like just the growth from there has been off the chart we've seen a lot more just outside support too um like mars brewery let us host a world's watching party to watch disc golf in a bar and like that never really been done in chicago before and it's like watching f1 or any other sports and we brought discs in a basket so people could play you know, outside the brewery, we got the local comic book shop to sell discs because there's nowhere that we could buy them on the south side. Um, and so we're seeing like more and more p- places like pick up discs. Tommy hopes that kind of growth will propel them to the national and maybe even international stage. An echoing of the past that was started by the Chicago World's Fair over a century ago. I think that like Chicago's got a really interesting kind of unique opportunity where I think people would enjoy coming to Chicago for like a professional event. And like, I, I would personally love seeing people like Paul McBeth throw this into the lake uh, <laughs> and, and deal with the Chicago wind. Like, I think we've got such a unique kind of um, area here that, and then, you know, the resources, the hotels, you know, everything else. I think that several years from now we can see, hopefully we see some professional level events in the city. But Dana from Discmania isn't so sure. First of all, it takes a, a professional level course, uh, very, very driven tournament director and, and really a, a team of people to put on an event like that. And, and you have to grow it from a small event and have the experience of running events. And then you have to be in the right place and have the right people in place. So Tommy, what he's doing there is he's getting that experience and the type of course that is there now, which is a temporary course and the and hopefully the the course that we will have permanently that that won't uh, be a, a pro tour caliber course. If we were to put in a, pro, a disc golf pro tour type of course, it would be a huge, massive course. What we have now at Jackson Park is a 
a really fun course. It's accessible, um, easy to get to, holes flow very, very good into each other. It's it's intuitive and they're not very long. It's it's very fun to play. And even for someone like me who is a former professional player, and then I think uh, I've heard from many newer players that you know the, the course there at Jackson Park, uh, it scratches a lot of itches. For Louise, the course at Jackson Park is just perfect. Hyde Park just stopped with this amazing gift that we got from, from COVID, which was getting pe- giving people who had been spending their days behind computers outside. Uh, and so disc golf is a wonderful place that people come out together and talk and they share their ideas and they bring their children out. Families can come out together. Women can play and play wonderfully. Children can play and play wonderfully. So every kid can be a hero. And that's what we'd like to have going. Everybody can do disc golf. And it's just such a pleasure. As for Tommy, the best thing you can do is to try disc golf for yourself. If you've never tried it, like it's, you know, it's something that you can go pick it up and, you know, throw the Frisbee at the basket. And I think the parks are the perfect place for it. And so if it's something that you're interested in doing is, you know, try it out. And I think that we found a really kind of good mix of, you know, it's allowed us to clean up the park, maintain it. You know, we don't need to be exclusive in the area. Like this weekend, there was a half marathon in there. You know, people are walking their dogs, riding their bikes. Um, and, you know, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that if we get the T-signs with the, you know, the park history in there is even non-disc golfers will come in there and they can learn about the park. They can see where the world history was. And even the disc golfers is, you know, coming into the community and learning about the park and seeing the World's Fair was here. Not only like being outside and like healthy, but, you know, going home with new knowledge. According to cityparksalliance.org, Urban parks provide access to recreational opportunities, increase property values, spur local economies, combat crime, and protect cities from environmental impact. But the reality is is that in many cases, tax dollars are paying for public lands that are rarely used. Tommy Ingalls changed that narrative. The passion and determination of one sport enthusiast has made a positive difference to the physical and social health of his community and greatly improved the green space that they share. We can all do our part in keeping our public parks safe, clean, and accessible by donating to causes that increase neighborhood engagement and reduce crime, joining advocacy groups that help build awareness and equity, or even participating in park cleanup days. As the saying goes, it takes a village to create a community. If you'd like to know more about Hyde Park Disc Golf and the work Tommy is doing, you can find them at hydeparkdiscgolf.org. They have lots of great information on upcoming events in and around the Chicago area and can always use your support wherever you are. We also want to thank the Paul Macbeth Foundation for their contribution to today's episode. You can learn more about the work that they're doing locally and around the world at paulmacbethfoundation.org. And lastly, if you're inspired by today's episode, why don't you try disc golf out for yourself? It's never been easier to play. Just go to youplaydiscgolf.org. That's the letter U, play, discgolf.org. All it takes is you, a disc, and a course to start playing. And if you need to pick up a couple of discs to start, you can find a large selection for beginners to experts at discmania.net. Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with Hum Productions. Our web address is hum.com 
That's hummproductions.org. Financial support for the show is provided by JLB Images and listeners like you who support us on Patreon and GoFundMe. That's patreon.com forward slash impactually and gofundme.com forward slash home productions. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guests, Tommy Ingalls, Dana Vitchi, and Louise McCurry. We'd also like to thank Dustin Leatherman of the Paul Macbeth Foundation and Chad Guyton for their invaluable time with today's episode. Special thanks to Sean Miller for sharing his single, Midwest States. We have a link to his website and social media in our show notes, and his music is available on all major streaming platforms. And our team, Christine Murdoch, Senior Producer and Editor, Jacob Motz, Head Writer, Director of Production, Jack Bechtold. Director of Operations, James Nash. Sound Engineering by Andy Shoemaker. Music Curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative. Richard Cassis of Spark Inc. for Digital Artwork. Andrew Sachs for Our Original Music. And I'm Brooke Bechtold, Executive Producer, Creator, and Host. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We'd love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think would be great to have on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary episode. Everyone has a story. Share. I can call it on my home. I can call it on